Hello and welcome to Planet Poetry. I'm Peter Kenny. And I'm Robin Houghton. And in this episode, Peter talks to Jeremy Page, who, as well as being editor of the Frogmore Papers, is also a fine poet and prose writer in his own right. How long has he been editing Frogmore Papers again? I think it's just coming up to 39 years, which is an amazing commitment. The man deserves an OBE, I think. I think so, definitely. More OBEs for poets, that's what we think, on Planet Poetry. (laughs) (laughs) We also talk a bit about what we've been reading. I've gone back to William Blake, and Peter was struck by a reading uh, recently by Kay Syred, and I think he's going to be talking about her latest collection. Yeah, part of the ongoing investigation. How do you write a green poem? Yes, yes, episodes, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, shall we hear what Jeremy had to say to Peter recently? Jeremy Page has published several collections of poetry, including Stepping Back, Resubmission for the Ordinary Level Examination in Psychogeography, Frogmore Press 2016, Closing Time 2014 from Pindrop Press, Two Plays, Loving Psyche and Verrall of the White Heart, and an excellent novella, London Calling from Cultured Llama in 2018. Since May 1983, he has also edited the Frogmore Papers, which at the time of recording is fast approaching 39 years. So, hello Jeremy, welcome to Planet Poetry. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm I'm delighted to have snared you for our podcast. 39 years of doing anything with such resilience and persistence is is an amazing human achievement. Has it now just become part of who you are? (laughs) I think it probably has. I think that's a safe assumption, actually. Um, it's been with me longer than most other dimensions of my present life. So, uh, yeah, I think the answer to your question would have to be yes. We'll talk more about your editorship later. But um, today, I really want to focus on your excellent new collection, The Naming, which popped out into the world in 2021. It's a rich collection haunted by the notion of memory and how words and memory interact. Did you find you were writing about memory lots randomly or did you have a clear destination in mind when you started writing this collection? Well, I think I've always been fascinated by memory, by the, the unreliability of memory. As I understand it, our brains aren't really built to provide us with a kind of accurate record of the past. They are built much more to enable us to negotiate the present and, where possible, anticipate the future. So it's not surprising that our memories are as unreliable as they are, but I find it absolutely fascinating that they are unreliable things. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is I've been reading a bit about memory I read a book by Dr. Julia Shaw called The Memory Illusion. Mm. Uh, It's astonishingly easy to create false memories in other people. So I think that whole idea of memory being very plastic is quite interesting. Yes, I heard uh, Julia Shaw on on The Life Scientific recently, and it was absolutely fascinating. Well, your collection is in three sections. The first is called the, The Future of Nostalgia which I think is a great section title. Maybe we should just kick off with reading the first poem in the collection. Sure. So the first poem in the collection is Postcard of Odessa, which in some senses perhaps has a rather different significance to it in the current uh, climate and the current circumstances. But um, I visited Odessa 
the best part of half a century ago. Um, and my memory of uh, that particular visit is very vivid, though it may well be, of course, highly inaccurate. Um, but we won't worry too much about that. Uh, so I'll read Postcard of Odessa. Clearing out another drawer, I come across the postcard quite by chance. Sepia, faded, the city's name in Cyrillic script. And before I know what I'm doing... I am composing your name in characters that are as unfamiliar to me now as you are, 40 years on from the picnic on the Potemkin steps, the glasses raised to toast our futures in the cheapest Soviet vodka, and all the innocence you coaxed from me so tenderly. A lovely way to open the collection, a postcard from the past. The fact that it's sepia suggests that ageing and, and a postcard is always a version of a place with lipstick on it, isn't it? Another thing that struck me about it was all the innocence you coaxed from me so tenderly. And there's something about that kind of encounter, you know, where you're swigging vodka and kind of there's a sense of romance. But instead of something, you know, a kind of a knowledge or a education that happens, what's being coaxed from you is actually innocence. Uh, and I found that sort of little twist at the end really interesting. The the encounter that is recalled in that poem, in my memory at least, was was in fact a very romantic one. So it was a it was quite a sweet coaxing of innocence mm. that happened. And it was a variety of innocence that I was quite happy to have coaxed from me. <laughs> Excellent. One of the quotes that's sort of haunting this collection is that the, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. I think it was L.P. Hartley in The Go-Between. You know, there are lots of poems set in other countries, but uh, the next poem I'm going to ask you to read, it's set obviously in Folkestone, close to home. Still life, Folkestone. Her window is all 60s GDR. Two empty cartons flank a twin pack of kitchen roll, centre stage. A tin of carrots, label faded by the sun, confronts a can of processed peas on doilies drained to twenty shades of grey. And yes, she is open for business, despite the films she watches on a loop in the room behind the shop, where she once served oxtail soup, cottage pie, jelly and ice cream to her regulars, commercial travellers all. Despite the eggs, the solitary pack of tea, some total of her stock. This is almost a, a kind of portrait of someone stuck in the past. I find this, I get a sort of sense of almost that fear of the past, that sense of being trapped in a really unpleasant environment. It's very easy to write in that nostalgic fashion, but... What was going through your mind when you were writing this? Well, well, this um, poem was uh, inspired by a very interesting little shop um, that existed until only a few years ago. Um, and when I was a student at secondary school, I used to call in at that shop on Fridays and buy 10 Carreras guards that would... Uh, be my smokes for the weekend. Um, and in those days, um, actually, it was a comparatively well-stocked shop and indeed was serving meals in the back room to commercial travellers. And then a kind of process of 
I suppose, entropy set in, and the stock just dwindled and never seemed to be replaced. And the window became a rather very sad shop window, which indicated that inside there was really very little little that you could actually buy. Uh, but the shop resolutely <laughs> remained open for, for many, many years in that kind of vein. And I think only finally shut up shop about maybe five years ago, comparatively recently. The next poem from the, the future of nostalgia that uh, really kind of resonated with me was the poem Silver Cross, which I find uh, rather mysterious. And uh, so if you could give us that. Yeah, sure. i just say uh, before that, the starting point for this poem really was um, uh, Cyril Connolly's observation that the pram in the hall was uh, one of the enemies of promise. And when my children were very young, um, a Silver Cross pram was the vehicle that was used for transporting them around town. And that Silver Cross lingered uh, a little while after my children had grown up and didn't need a pram anymore. Silver Cross. More than a decade since it last stood huge and elegant in the hall, I still sense its absence, still expect to manoeuvre past to reach the front door and the world. A solitary scuff mark on the skirting board, the faintest impression of a tire on the floor, are the only signs that, year upon year, the silver cross impeded breezy passage to the booker, forward, T.S. Eliot, while birth was given to child after child, honest toil engaged in to pay the bills, and night upon night was rudely interrupted. Now the pram occupies prime position in the Museum of Memory in the garret, alongside the silent keys of the Olivetti, and while the masterwork remains unwritten, one more perpetual possibility in a world of speculation, the pages of my moleskin notebook blanker than ever. The house, in disarray, is cluttered with the stories of the years, the good, the bad, the everyday, and the promise of all the lives begun there. Upstairs, in the attic, the silver cross endures, a benign and welcome enemy. Mm, again, that lovely sort of ambiguous ending. When I read that poem, I was actually envisaging a, a silver cross, and there was a, there was a way I was reading this of uh, you know the silver cross being some kind of an impediment to your life that was based around some kind of faith, and actually to learn that it's a pram. <laughs> Uh, but it sort of has the same kind of function in a way. Did also for me take on something of a secondary meaning in the sense that you know uh, children can be seen as a cross to bear, but a silver cross yeah. in that they are a cross of immense value, of course. Um, so that there was that kind of secondary meaning there. But but really, the poem in the course of writing it, that poem became a conversation with myself um, about the the kinds of compromises that the that artists of the top rank um, among whom I obviously do not number myself are not prepared to make and the price mm. that others often pay for the dedication yeah. to art that is shown by um, artists of the top rank that really comes across pushing past to, to get on with the business of the world uh, and maybe it in being an impediment towards achieving bookers forwards T.S. Eliot's and all the rest of it 
Um, yeah, I was hoping for a little irony there. I wasn't really meaning yeah. to, to suggest for one moment, and I would be horrified if anybody thought I was, that that. but for my children, I would have achieved the book of the T.S. Eliot or the, uh, or the forward. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, certainly the, the kinds of accommodations that um, people who are creating but aren't of that top rank make was mm. something I wanted to explore a little bit in the poem. Well, I think it's important to blame the children, t- turn the tables. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure my children would agree, but uh, yeah, I get your point. <laughs> the, the, the second section, the words we need, is full of words that you've gleaned from other languages that kind of say things that aren't quite sayable in English. Oh, gosh, I, I wish I'd looked up how to say this one first. The German Fernway. Fernway, yeah. Fernway. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, which apparently is the call of faraway places. Would you read that? Fanve. Late in the day, long after the light has gone, I'm struck by the thought that I cannot remember a world before the spreadsheet I am staring at consumed me. I glance at my watch, quarter to five, late February, and I am somewhere in England. The wolf is watching. He speaks of wild places where I can only track his footprints through the snow. I love that simply because being someone that's also had to, you know, do jobs and stuff rather than <laughs> sit around writing poems, you know, that sense of being ambushed by the, the absence of wildness in one's own life, you know, that that call for something more untamed and that you are sitting in front of your, <laughs> your spreadsheet or... It's absolutely what I wanted to capture. And in fact, yeah. I, for, for the many years in which spreadsheets formed a much more significant part of my working life than I would have wished, I did actually um, seek to mitigate this a little bit by actually having a Schleich model wolf sitting on the computer in front of me and um, <laughs> reminding me that there were were wild places and that there were places where, um, where a wolf's tracks could be followed through the snow because, uh, frankly, anything was a welcome antidote to um, to Excel spreadsheets after a certain point. Sort of a life in grids. <laughs> yes. <laughs> An exquisite little poem. Um, again, I'd, I'm going to pronounce it and then you'll give me the correct pronunciation. Resfeber. I think uh, that's more, more or less right. Resfeber, I think. Resfeber. Which um, your note says, the restless beat of the traveller's heart before a journey begins. Okay, so this is from the the Swedish uh, Reisfeber. Every object on the table between us has been dropped a dozen times or more. As he rehearses the reasons why all will be well in his brave new world, hundreds of miles north of here, where all our contact will be virtual, where the convictions grown and nurtured over 18 years will be challenged and assaulted, where nothing will have the welcome smack of familiarity. But it will soon be Christmas, we agree, as we exchange farewells. The dark consumes us incrementally, and his hands are restless still. I really like the fact that just the objects on the table between the two protagonists are kind of uncertain and a minefield of potential accidents. And and that sense of trepidation that the sun is about to go off impossibly far, um, and what on earth might befall him? That's domestic accidents and the threat of the world is beautifully poised in that. 
Yeah, I mean, I was struck in, in I mean, in the course of the, the kind of the, the incident, the extended farewell that inspired this poem, I was very struck by how, in a sense, how out of character it was for my son to be demonstrating these traits of um, trepidation almost about the prospect of living somewhere else for the first time, of leaving behind everything that he um, had had known, everything that was familiar to him. And um, I'm happy to report that, in fact, he took to it like a duck to water and had a whale of a time. Oh, that's great. <laughs> to mix my metaphors. <laughs> We're approaching the, the, the final section, the naming, which is a section full of goodbyes. But in your other work, say, for example, in the, your novella, London Calling, which I really like, you're really good at the beginnings and that kind of youthful period of... Because lo- London Calling, it's someone um, moving to London as a very young person and finding themselves in all kinds of adventures with a, of a sexual and kind of exploratory nature, which is, a, I just think it's a, a, a wonderful novella. But, but I, um, I remain convinced that most men in their heads remain somewhere between the ages of 11 and 18. Yeah. I know I do. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I certainly have flashes of it, yeah. <laughs> As I was saying, the, the final section, the naming, is a section full of goodbyes, but perhaps one of them, the most unusual is the first poem in that section, The End of Poetry, which um, for a, an editor of a poetry magazine and a poet themselves is quite an interesting thing to be writing about. I will. I'll just say that this poem is one that seems to particularly resonate with other editors. I've noticed, I've noticed. <laughs> The End of Poetry. Ambushed by the conviction that I must never again read, nor thus in fairness write, one more ego poem describing in exhaustive and exhausting detail the trivia of the poet's life, nor one that lays bare hormonal rites of passage from teenage years to adulthood, nor any sentimental recollection of long-dead kith or longer-dead kin, nor one in coy bucolic imitation of Thomas D. or E. or R. S., nor one that marks the passing of a parent more distant relative, or, God help us, someone briefly famous encountered just the once. Nor one magicked from some oh-so-meaningful entry in the poet's wretched journal. Nor one lamenting our irrelevance to the cosmos. Nor one, damn it, evoking the poet's time in distant lands. I conclude reluctantly that the only fit subject for my last poem is this. I mean, I can see why that's popular with editors. You read through that list of things that you're a bore and can't bear ever to see again, and you think, you sort of check every single box in it of myself into things I've written in the past. Um, and me too, of course. <laughs> yes, and I think that's that's the thing. Is I think it's the, you inevitably, as a, a, an editor, must have read so much uh, poetry of such variable standards, you know, can you describe the relief you feel when you find a good one? Thing? <laughs> um, it does feel exhausting. And I think what makes it possible is exactly what you've just, just mentioned, really. Actually, when, when you encounter a poem that kind of bucks the trend, that really does it for you, that actually compensates for all the many that really don't. Perfectly decent, perfectly competent work in many cases. 
but actually, you know, ploughing very, very familiar furrows that I don't necessarily feel as if I need to see ploughed anymore. Mm. <laughs> um, and you're right. Yes, I mean, I, I do read an extraordinary, um, I mean, twice a year, the submission window for the Frogmore papers is the months, uh, the windows are the months of April and um, October. So April and October um, are particularly busy months, heavy months on the reading front. And it, the process can be very exhausting. And there sometimes does come a time when I just have to say no more and go and crack open a bottle of wine. Having done this job for like 39 years, which is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, uh, we're of an age. And um, I remember when I first started, you know, thinking about sending poems out to magazines in sort of eighty. 382 I think I got my first work published and Frogmore Papers was something I became quickly aware of mm-hmm. and the fact that it's the persistence of Frogmore Papers is quite astonishing you know and it's really down to your efforts or can you describe the tides in you know what's being written about you know from a, a big overview of all that time or is that too complicated to say I think I think in a sense it is I mean the subject matter has always uh, of the poems that I receive has always been pretty varied uh, to be frank um, and I think what has changed more than the nature of the subject matter although sometimes kind of a, a tendency more towards darkness perhaps has been discernible in dark times and I kind of I wonder I wonder what's going to be in the post bag for the next <laughs> submission window um, next month um, I don't suppose it's going to be full of uh, sweetness and light um, but the, the the change has been more I think um, in respect of the the quality of work received because I, I don't actually receive a lot of work that is out and out bad that necessarily automatically disqualifies itself at, at first reading most poems that i get require more than they deserve and and require more than that because they uh, because the vast majority of poetry that i receive is actually well crafted oh that's really interesting I, I years ago i edited a small magazine back in the 80s and the work that I, I remember receiving, you know, was, you know, some of it seemed Victorian, you know, mm. <laughs> you know, greeting card style rhymes and things. But you, you're not subjected to any of that these days. Well, I wouldn't say I'm not subjected to any of it, but mercifully, yeah. not a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, occasionally, I am, I am still ambushed by a poem of the uh, of the variety you describe, but much less so, I think, than in the past. It may be yeah. something to do with the fact that, you know, we do have submission guidelines. I think I have tried to make it relatively clear in them of the, the, the certain types of poetry won't won't be looked upon very favorably and perhaps it is partly as a result of that that we tend to get mostly um as i say pretty well crafted work we're in a time of identity politics at the moment intersectionality um i don't notice that in in the pages of frogmore no uh not yet to be honest although it is something that i'm kind of anticipating um the kind the kind of the identity issues don't tend to reflect kind of current awareness of intersectionality they're, they're they're more to do with i suppose with people's roots and origins and and how they see themselves in the world mm-hmm. um but what you've just outlined is something that i have been kind of anticipating um finding in in the post bag it hasn't happened yet really it's always fascinating to see what's around the corner yes and, uh, <laughs> i'm already eagerly anticipating the next trend whatever that will be <laughs> yes we're in the final section of your collection, and there's a poem which is a very sad poem, but I, so I didn't want to end on this. Could you read us Fading? Fading. 
And I wonder how long you will know me. How long until I join the bit part players, characters who made their first appearance after you had lost the plot? How long until the fragile line between me and everyone else dissolves, until I might be son or grandson, casual acquaintance, best friend, or the man from the gas board? I know how it ends, I've read the book, while you, thank God, have not. Hmm. My assumption is that that's for a, a, a father. Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. actually quite an old poem, actually, which um, didn't for some reason appear in any of my previous collections. But um, yeah. let's see, it is about my father. And stands up very well, I think. It's interesting, this idea between memory and language is something you, you know, talk about quite a lot. But also this idea that memory is built on shifting sands, you know, as we mentioned earlier, that memory is unreliable especially early years, and that forms such a strand of who we think we are in terms of, you know, building our own identities, and yet the, a lot of those memories are all made up <laughs> yeah, or reinvented. Memories um, of memories very often, yeah. I mean, I have a, I have a, a project in mind. I, I actually am in the unusual, who knows, maybe unique position of actually possessing diaries that go back to the mid-1970s. And these diaries are diaries oh. actually, which actually record what happened rather than how I felt. And I and uh, so I've reached the stage really where I'm thinking, what, what am I going to do <laughs> with all these diaries? And I envisage a project in which I'm going to try to extract, if you like, the most interesting parts of them um, and then dispose of them but actually i'm also hoping to kind of reflect on the process of doing that and sometimes to triangulate what's in those diaries with um film video evidence photographic evidence um and and just try to kind of arrive at some kind of notion of what it actually was like rather than what i remember it <laughs> being yeah. like in that dr julia shaw book there was something where people were shown a person and then asked to pick them out from an identity lineup. Mm. And the people that were asked to describe the person immediately after they saw it and then went to the lineup half an hour later were less good at identifying the person than people that were asked to do a completely different activity and not talk about that person. So the idea was that once you put it into words and tell somebody else, you have a kind of superimposed memory of of yourself telling somebody else and the memory becomes confabulated and confused. So putting it into language and describing it can actually make the me memory less sharp, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and what's so great about what you're saying about those journals is that they're, they're just factual reporting the data still pure in a way. So that's going to be fascinating to do that. I think it will be. I don't underestimate the size of the undertaking. I think it's going to be a very big job. It's not It's not my current writing project, but it's a little way down the track. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I am quite looking forward to it. I mean, to, to put it rather grandly, I mean, you know, it might help me to find out who I am. Yeah. When you find out, let us know. It might be <laughs> useful to other people. Yes. <laughs> the, the last poem in the collection is called the Return. Could I ask you to read that? Yep, certainly. The Return. The kitty wakes are back and nights are drawing out. Soon we shall adjust clocks, recalibrate time's passage through the seasons, in the quiet hope that our familiar rituals will unfold around us as they always have, 
and that this year, once again, despite everything, despite everything, we will be their witness. Yeah, in a way that poem ends as a collection on a sort of note of hope and resilience, which, because uh, you have gone to those darker places with the fading and, mm. you know, the end of poetry and you flirted with the exhaustion of it all. And then there's that kind of sense of a, a renewal at the end. I think what I was trying to to capture there was that most of us probably have uh, regular events in our years that kind of punctuate our lives and of course we none of us ever well very few of us ever really know when we're going to be experiencing those events for the last time but we live kind of in in eternal hope that we will experience them again yeah. um but knowing that there will come a point at which we we don't so i think i think it, it i mean i i hoped it was you know as a message of hope as you've described it really so the the fact that you do write you, you write poetry you've written plays and and prose and so on do you think that's an advantage or a disadvantage i i find that i'm drawing on different resources to write poetry and prose i don't think i could work on both in the same day and what i try to do or at least what i'm trying to do at the moment because i am working on a fairly substantial prose project which is not without its frustrations but um, what I try to do is to work on the prose project during the week and to find some time at the weekend and actually in a different geographical place which is the shed at the end of my garden to work on um, poetry at the weekends and, and it's very satisfying when that works but it doesn't always work quite as neatly as, as I've just described. Oh I, l- I like the idea of actually having a poetry shed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I, I need that shed. It's it's technology free zone. It doesn't have any doesn't have any heating, doesn't have any power points, and uh, I, when I use it in the winter, I usually I'm, I'm well wrapped up in a scarf and uh, and overcoat. But uh, but it's great. It's a great place to escape to. I love the idea of um, coldness focusing on my. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have got a I have got a little hip flask up there, which is uh, there for emergencies. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been lovely talking to you, Jeremy, and. Uh... Uh, good luck with all your future projects. Uh, I'm particularly fascinated by the, the the one involving your journal. Be very keen to read that when it's uh, when it's done. I'll keep and, you posted, uh, Peter. Thank you. And uh, good luck with uh, the Frogmore papers. Long may it uh, be published. And, Thanks uh, very much. Yeah, number hundred is due in September. Oh wow! Oh gosh. Yes, I've just resubscribed. So good. I'll get that <laughs> one thumping through the door. You will. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Jeremy's work and I really loved the naming. So I'm glad you, you got stuck into that with him. I think he's probably, I expect like a lot of magazine editors, they're used to being thought of as editor of such and such magazine. And I think it's really nice to actually remind people that these are poets. And so I thought that was a really nice way in. I really like the subject of his book, which was about memory. And so much of his work does focus on memory. Memory and being a young person, there, there seems to be a kind of twin theme in his prose, it's that, especially in that novella, A London Calling, that sense of youthful exuberance and finding your way in the world. Yeah, yeah. And it's quite interesting how that contrasts with, you know, well-seasoned reviewing the past. Yes. Uh, and he, I, I like to comment he made at the beginning about 
Our brains aren't built to navigate the past, as it were. And so this whole idea of everything you dredge up from the past, actually, you can't be sure that it's all as it happened. It's all unreliable by its very nature. Yeah, it's halfway to fiction, some kind of fiction already memory. Like that poem about that old shop that was sort of frozen in time. In Folkestone, and, yeah, loved, yeah. Loved that. Yeah, I love that. I, I found that almost gave me the creeps in a way because it was that sense of something being unnaturally kind of suspended, you know, like like an ant in amber or something. Yes. But gradually yes. kind of withering away at the same time. It's and we've all seen shots like that, thing. haven't we? I mean, I, I yeah. remember there was a hairdresser's in Lewis that for ages, I just sort of thought, what, has anyone ever go in there? Had to have one of those old-fashioned beehive hair dryers you know in the front and, and a sort yeah. of cur- neck curtain that you couldn't quite see behind and thought mm, is that really a hairdresser's you know but it's, it was there forever i think that's just uh you know it's just as you say frozen in time yeah that was a, that was a great poem and he's got this way of conjuring up an era and the way he describes characters in very few words but you can absolutely picture those characters and that and that period poem the silver cross uh, about the pram he's got quite a, a matter-of-fact way of reading you know but there's something very poignant about you know the this thing that was always in the way and is now kind of <laughs> absolutely up there in the loft somewhere with those, those old typewriters and i like i liked that you were thinking in terms of an actual cross and you know yeah. your, your, your interpretation of it was interesting as well but that, i mean i think that's always fascinating to to find different readings of a poem. <laughs> well, yeah, spot the person that's never been a parent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what what a, a labour of love that's been for 39 years, edit, editing the Frogmore papers. Hard um, to imagine, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, hard to imagine. I was just thinking this morning, I think Jeremy said, didn't he, that that's the longest thing he can claim probably in his whole life. Yeah. <laughs> but. I mean, I've got one client that I do work for who I've been doing the same thing for, for I think 18 years. And that, that feels like a long time. All those people that he's given a platform to, you know, thousands of writers over that time. Absolutely. Uh, and I think the magazine still attracts good writers. And, and, and in particular, I think the annual competition. That has mm. I can't remember what the prize money is, but it's in guineas. And yeah. it, I think that particularly attracts a good uh, lot of entries from around the world because it is so well established the role of editor is so important that but that can often it seems overshadow their own writing you know because they're so important to so many people as an editor so it was really nice to turn the tables and uh, shine a light on jeremy's own writing yes definitely and he seems to have a very pragmatic attitude to setting time aside for writing poetry writing prose and and clearly the the magazine and i think having the the submissions windows which i think is a newish thing well it's a newish thing anyway isn't it for everyone but it's so common now and it must be a very good way of managing the the magazine in in such a way that you have this time to do your own work i sort of like the mental picture i had afterwards of um, jeremy reading all these submissions in his little shed, the emergency <laughs> bottle of wine. He was very generous, though, wasn't he? You know, he said that actually submissions have improved, and yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> I thought he was um, he was very kind there and positive. Yeah, and I liked his observation that uh, 
Like poetry is generally much better crafted these days. Yeah, um, yeah. there's lots of creative writing to... courses, aren't there? And you know, it's become uh, something that people don't just sort of dash things off. I think they they think mm. before they send, and well, sometimes we think too much, don't we, before we send? But first started becoming interested in poetry as a, a late teenager. That you know, a lot of what was considered quite hip and poetry at the time was pretty formless really you know it's perhaps under the punk influence as well you know you think of somebody like john cooper clark just yeah. kind of isn't the form's not the thing it's the you know how it sounds and just the well there is, the- there is a certain amount of that now i suppose but i suppose what you're saying is that there was of that period there's a lot of throwing out all the rules and the idea that free verse just meant you know you didn't have to think about free, free for all. all free for yeah. all yeah not having a a rationale for what it is you're, you're doing Although that's yeah. quite hard sometimes, isn't it? I try to say to myself, why have I done that? You know, what's my rationale for that particular, you know, why, why is there no punctuation? And it's a good, it's good to ask yourself these questions, as you say, because then it's, then you're thinking about it. But I don't know that we've, there's always an answer. Do you, I mean, do you find you, you write something and, and maybe you find that you're writing with no punctuation or you find you're putting in ampersands or gaps or, or you're not putting it into stanzas, you know, it comes, it waves across the page. And do you ever sort of find yourself doing that and then thinking, why am I doing that? And what's, what's this got to do with it? Yeah. I, I went, I had a couple of poems published decades ago now where it was very much that kind of all scattering and crossings of words out yeah. and, you know, undermining the, the language and structure. But I, I kind of tired of that. And I think poems generally find their own, you know, there is a structure in there. You just have to find what it is, really. Mm. I find a lot of poems I'm writing at the moment are, are turning into sonnets. You know, they, they can start off as like, you know, 30-line poems, and in the end they're sort of aiming to revert to sonnets, <laughs> uh, unrhymed sonnets. Uh, oh, well, the, next month uh, the um, 14 magazine opens its window, I think, so chuck a few 14-liners there. Yeah, I had yeah. one uh, in the last one, actually. When Jeremy spoke about this project with his journals my ears pricked up there because I've got a load of my diaries from the 1970s as well and I've always sort of thought oh the last thing I want is to die and for someone to find those diaries you know I mean it's really <laughs> yeah. I mean it's sort of 80% embarrassment and uh, 5% something interesting in there he said his were all very factual yeah. uh, I think mine are the opposite mine are very sort of teenage girl rubbish but I had lots of well-documented Januaries <laughs> <laughs> oh, you didn't keep it going. <laughs> and, uh, but, but when I did keep it going for for a while, they were just repositories of self pity and weeping. And I, at the time, it was quite therapeutic. But then, you know, I sort of find one of these Richard January diaries, and it's all just full of <laughs> kind of miserable self pity. And I think surely I couldn't have been like that all the way through. So. <laughs> and I, I still keep up with some of my school, my old school friends, and I entertain them every now and again. I pull out. Uh, you know today's today's entry for 1975 and, and try and find something with them in it and then that yeah. gives them some hilarity interesting listening to your interview with jeremy when you were talking i think at the beginning about these youthful experiences and the sense of innocence or naivety of youth he's also writing from a position of experience and and so somehow he combines those things and 
it was making me think of William Blake, uh, Songs of oh. Innocence and Experience. Yeah. And it made me think, oh, I must go back to that. And, mm. uh, which, which I did. And it's extraordinary, isn't it? I've never really spent a long time on the work of William Blake. These poems, they're easy just to read them. You know, they're kind of in this almost, you know, Songs of Innocence in particular, you sort of think, oh, yes, okay, they could be written for children. And, and some have been, kind of hijacked in that way haven't they tiger tiger burning bright and yet once you start looking into them you realize that that's uh that was very much a, an, art, an artifice really and that he had um a lot of strong dark big things to say didn't he about the politics of the time and and man's condition so i was thinking well what poem could i read from here that might be an interesting one to because some of them are very short there's one called the sick rose which I, oh, I always I love go back this. to, you know that one, and yeah. and it, and it's been and it was I didn't realise it was set to music by Benjamin Britten. I had to listen, and yeah. it's very dark music, and yeah. puts it's this exquisite. puts this it. little yeah. poem in a different light, isn't it? In fact, my 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 mother uh, used to love Benjamin Britten in my early childhood. Oh, did she? And used to, and that was one that I heard with Peter Pierce singing it. Yes, and, uh, yes. It, it blew my mind then. It was r- really one of the things that got me into poetry because gosh. I thought, what is this weird weirdness, you know? Yeah, and, gosh, how uh, interesting. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing uh, piece, but the spellbinding poem that stayed with me. I'll read it, Shalami. It's obviously very short. The Sick Rose. Oh, Rose, thou art sick. The invisible worm that flies in the night, in the howling storm, has found out thy bed of crimson joy, and his dark secret love does thy life destroy. Yeah. I mean, there's so much packed into that, isn't there? This worm, is that <laughs> sort of, sort of uh, you know, the serpent, I suppose, in the Garden of Eden or... But it could stand for all sorts of things, couldn't it? In the night and the howling storm, we could be talking about revolution and war. And the, he, he's got got this thing of uh, you know cycles of time, which actually Yeats uh, borrowed from. He's got this poem called "A Mental Traveller," which is you know people sort of becoming younger and older and swapping sexes and right. doing all that stuff. But this this kind of passage of moving from innocence to experience, you know, like the this rose. Then kind of undermined by this worm, and then you know the sort of this corrupted, once beautiful thing will be the result of it. Yes, uh, yes. The imagery just—it just stays with you, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. So that sounds it's so lovely to hear that again. I, I love that poem. Oh, I, I'm glad you know that one. And uh, so that's out of Songs of Experience, and um, yeah, I just I just thought, gosh, I want I want to look at these again. I've got this funny book of. Poetry and Prose of William Blake, complete in one volume. Gosh, that must be a hefty one. <laughs> from the Nonsuch Press, 1943. Yeah, it is quite hefty, actually. It's a bit of a tome. Yeah. It looks a bit like the Bible when I get it off the bookshelf. <laughs> yeah. I must admit, his, the, his really long poems, um, I haven't strayed into very much. I tend to prefer the shorter ones just because I lack stamina. And... I, like, I like short poems. <laughs> <laughs> So, what have you been reading? I've been on a sort of quest about how you go about writing eco poetry or, oh, or green yes. poetry. Yes, um, yeah, I call it a quest. It's just an occasional kind of investigation. 
But by chance, I went to a reading where uh, Kay Syrad was uh, reading from her new collection, What is Near. Mm. I, I don't know her or her work, but I enjoyed her reading and bought her book afterwards. And actually, I'm just loving this book. It's called What is Near. I've seen her at work in magazines. This joins the dots somehow. Mm -hmm. The sum of the poems is much more than just encountering one-off. And she's involved in uh, running eco-poetry workshops and so on. So this is an explicit objective of hers to be able to write like this. You know, this. I don't know if you've ever had this thing where you think about, I don't know, it could be a piece of music or, you know, a book or something, and you, and you think of a colour. This is about green issues, but I get a real sense of that juicy greenness about this because a lot of the poems are about moss, weirdly. I, yes, um, I've, I've heard that she writes about moss. I think I've seen Kay read in the past and, and she, she sort of brought, in, brought the moss up. So, yeah. But it's curiously philosophical because it, it, it's about trying to connect with nature and really studying particularly moss. But trying to connect but there's always that gap between human consciousness and and what's nature you know my quick reading of this is only a few days that she's sort of finding ways of almost sending little tendrils out to try and bridge that gap somehow there's a poem just like a beautiful brush stroke one little dab you know it's called reaching for the moss when my hand is on moss what is inside is brought to the periphery. I have fingers, a palm, a thumb, though less so. I do not know what my fingers register in their own language, so I call the sensations ah, tickle, brush. Impermanence fills my head, and with that small knowledge, something is quieted. Now, it's just hmm. a poem about touching moss and how the words she uses or that are conjured up in my, her mind are, are just approximations for what that feels like. Mm. In a tiny, deft way, is talking about what separates from us from nature and, and what sort of joins us as well. There's a kind of sense of being part of it because you can actually touch it, but also being entirely separate. So once you start to unpack it, there's so much there, and yet yes. it's over almost before you begin. You know? It's a kind of a micro observation, which yeah. which seems appropriate for such a microscopic, almost not microscopic organism, but certainly a lot of moss is very, very small, isn't it? You've got to look very closely to uh, to get it. Uh, how many types of moss there are? I mean, and interesting that she uses the word moss. Sort of thing. Oh, is moss a sort of catch-all for about five million types of plant life? And yeah, it's a particular family. She was saying at the reading, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's something like 500 million years or something. It's been around all wow. It's been here a long time. It's quite hard to get rid of, isn't it? But <laughs> <laughs> in our garden. <laughs> but I like the kind of idea of something that's overlooked being really looked at and really revisited. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are poems about other things in here, you know, but a section that's a kind of meditation on migration, you know, human migration and animal migrations and well, so yeah, on. Well, yeah, and you use that word meditation. That's what I was thinking. It, is, it, does, it has a sort of – it's almost using this uh, plant life as a channel for meditation, would, would you say? It sounds a bit like what you're saying. I'm loving being immersed in it. It's very strange. It is like going for a sort of green bath somehow. Um, in looking at this kind of eco-poetry, she's coming at it from a very interesting angle. How do you broach the surface – 
yeah. microscopic surface between yourself and moss. You know, it seems mad, but it's it's absolutely really fascinating, kind of philosophically, and also it just makes for good, really interesting poetry. It's slightly different, isn't it? It makes a change from trying to talk about the big things. You know, when when you say eco poetry to me and. You think about, you know, global warming or the world, Gaia and, you know, big, big stuff yeah. to actually turn it inside out and say, hang on a minute, let's get back to the very oldest parts of this planet and the very smallest and seemingly insignificant. And actually, in fact, that could be a key into the big topics. I'll read a, another one, uh, mm. which is, again, that kind of idea of not being able to quite describe or comprehend the, the scope of nature. It's called, Meanwhile, I barely know what grass is. There are daisies in the grass all summer, so many. In autumn, worm mounds, so many. In winter, I lose interest in the grass. I forget the grass, rest only in its easy green. I also forget the names of soundless trees, shrubs, flowers, as if they are mine to forget. I can neither match the songs of birds to feather, nor even say this call is avian or mammal or human. I study, trace, photograph, join an observation group, note habitat, mythology, symbol, yet still I barely know what grass is, even when you say family poaceae, say blade, node, stem, culm, stolon, tiller, sheath, oracle, and ligule, instead of lawn or turf. So, yeah, just the impossibility of knowing that other species, <laughs> yeah. you know, knowing its essence, you know, you can, even if you learn all the, t all the technical botanical terms. names, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, very fascinating and uh, an interesting kind of macro level kind of take on ecology rather than we're all doomed and let's head for the hills. <laughs> no, de definitely fascinating. And, and particularly that last poem, all those, even if you know all the names for things, there's still names that humans have given these things. Therefore, yeah. what has that got to do with the essence of the thing, I suppose? Yeah, what would grass call itself? <laughs> <laughs> Russell. No, um. <laughs>